It's New Year's Day. It's 2020, if you can believe that. And what this means is that we find ourselves on the doorstep of a brand new year, and not only that, but we're also crossing over the threshold of a brand new decade. I don't know about you, but it's difficult for me to believe that two decades have already passed since the turn of the millennium. At the same time, it's easy for me to believe that the world, well, the world is continuing to grow more and more corrupt, and the reason why it's easy for me to believe this is because this is what the Bible says. This is exactly how the Bible describes the last days. It's going to become more and more corrupt. And at the risk of being a complete Debbie Downer here tonight, we can say for certain that uh, the future will only continue to grow more and more corrupt here on this planet as we continue to wait for the second coming of our Savior, Jesus. In order to prove my point, I want to appeal to a few scriptures tonight. I, I want to appeal to the, first of all, the perilous times that Paul described in his second letter to Pastor Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you would look with me there at the screens there, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Paul declares, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's presenting us with a prophecy about the last days. He's talking about the perilous times that will come in the last days. And he's describing the last days as perilous or dangerous times. And the reason why is due to the fact that people will begin to embrace their carnal cravings by committing their lives to the pursuit of their own sinful pleasures. And as a result, the world will be filled with people who love themselves more than they love God. Without debate, we live in a day that could easily be described as perilous or dangerous times. And one evidence of this can be seen in the rise of mass shootings. Uh, according to the Gun Violence Archive, there were more than 400 mass shootings in 2019 here in America. Over 400 mass shootings. In other words, there were more mass shootings than there were days. Not only that, but during the same 12-month period of time, we witnessed 41 mass killing incidents that claimed the lives of 211 people right here in America. This doesn't even take into account of the number of homicides and abortions and assaults and rapes. Without debate, we live in perilous times. We should also notice again there in the beginning of verse 2 that the people who are here during the last days and the days in which I believe we're living in, these people will, according to Paul, be lovers of themselves. Think about that for a moment. People will be lovers of themselves, which is to say that people will become narcissists during the last days. And just as Paul predicted, we now live in a time of widespread narcissism, which is to say that 
people are entirely self-absorbed. I uh, saw it last night at the restaurant that Brenda and I ate at. Uh, I watched one individual uh, with phone in hand just taking pictures of themselves the whole time. I mean, it was just like unbelievable. Just completely focused. Not in, uh, sitting at a table full of people, just staring at themselves the whole time, snapping the shot, getting the right shot so they can grab it, you know, so everybody else can see how good they looked at that moment in their life. Narcissists. Well, it's true that the world has always had its fair share of narcissists. Social scientists now claim that narcissism has become a modern epidemic, and it's sad to say that narcissism always leads people to pursue their own sinful pleasures, whatever pleasures they prefer. So what kind of pleasure does the individual prefer? Well, Paul presents us with a a pretty long list. I want to continue to consider the sinful condition of narcissism, which Paul promised would plague the world during the last days, and and let's consider the effects of that narcissism. If you would uh, look with me once again there at 2 Timothy chapter 3, I want to begin reading once again at verse 2. There Paul tells us that men will be lovers of themselves, and then we see the effects of this narcissism uh, uh, manifesting in this sort of way. Lovers of money. You see, if you love yourself, you're going to become a lover of money, because if you love yourself, you're going to want more money so that you can please yourself. Narcissists are lovers of money. They're boasters. They're proud. They're blasphemers. They don't care about what their parents say. They're disobedient to parents. They're unthankful. Narcissists aren't interested in thanking people. No, because it's all about them. They're unholy and unloving. They're unforgiving. They don't know how to forgive, nor do they care to learn. They're slanderers. They speak evil of others. They have no self-control. They do whatever they feel like doing. And for some people, that means they become brutal. They're despisers of good. They're traitors. They're headstrong. They're haughty. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Those who become lovers of themselves begin to pursue the sinful pleasures that they prefer, and it always manifests uh, somewhere on this list. At the same time, the narcissistic people who populate the planet during the last days, they're going to attempt to maintain some form of godliness. As a matter of fact, look with me again there in the middle of verse 4. Here again, Paul tells us that these people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In other words, they they love their own pleasure rather than loving God. And yet, in verse 5, we learn that they have a form of godliness all the while denying its power. Now, as we consider what Paul is saying here, we should take a moment to ask, how can a person place their love of pleasure above their love of God while simultaneously maintaining some form of godliness? Seems to be contradictory. How can you balance this life of loving pleasure more than God but still maintaining some form of godliness? And the answer is found in the fact that it's all about appearances. In other words, the world is going to be filled during the last days with people who have a facade of faith, all the while they're living for the lust of the flesh. For example, there will be those who show up to church on Sunday, but only after committing adultery on Saturday night. 
But then they walk through the door Sunday morning like, you know, they're, they're here to worship because they love God. Except for when they're committing adultery. Then there will be those who, who present themselves as good people and acceptable in the sight of the Lord. They're good church-going people, but they're drunkards and, and, and they're into pornography and they're, and they're living for the lusts of the flesh while attempting to maintain some appearance of godliness. People who present themselves as good, godly people while simultaneously denying the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. There will be those who attempt to twist the scriptures in order to justify their pursuit of pleasure. They'll take the Bible and attempt to use it to justify their lifestyle. For example, over the past decade, I've come across many people who have appealed to the love of God. And they've appealed to verses in the Bible in order to justify everything from abortion to homosexuality. And the reason why is because they want to have a form of godliness while living for the lusts of their flesh. One example was seen back in July of 2018. That's when uh, Michelle Wolf celebrated July 4th on her Netflix-funded special. And during that special, she declares this. She says, women, don't forget. You have the power to give life. And men will try to control that. Don't let them. God bless abortions and God bless America. That's what she said. Sadly, this political spin is completely misleading. Uh, First of all, uh, women, uh, you have to understand, it takes both a man and a woman to produce a baby. So women in and of themselves don't have the power to give life. Takes a man and a woman. And secondly, a pregnant woman had the power to give life before Roe v. Wade. The idea that Roe v. Wade has now given women the power to give life is completely misleading. Women had the power to give life before Roe v. Wade. So, what did Roe v. Wade provide women the right to do? Give life or take life? If Michelle Wolf were being completely honest, what she should have said is this. Women, don't forget, the Supreme Court of America has incorrectly given you the right to take your baby's life, and conservative men will try to correct this murderous mistake. That would be a true statement. But she didn't say that. She put her spin on it and made it sound like abortion is this right that you have. Sadly, this wolf in patriotic clothing concluded her salute to abortion by calling it a blessing of God. That's what she was saying. God bless abortions. She's saying abortions are a blessing from God. In this way, she was hiding behind a facade of godliness while denying its power. And yet this is the world in which we live. In order to further prove my point, I would would point out that the love of God has been invoked in order to justify same-sex marriages. People will say, well, if people really love each other and if God loves them, then why would he stop them from doing this or living in this way? The love of God has been invoked in order to, uh, you know, 
gain the acceptance of, of those who, who, who insist that their gender doesn't have to match their biological plumbing. And while I truly believe that we ought to love every sinner with the love of Jesus Christ, there are many leaders in the church today who are insisting that the love of God not only leads us to love the sinner, but we also have to applaud their sexual sins. Really? I understand the Bible to mean that we're to love sinners while hate the, hating the sin, and that includes all sin. But there are leaders in the church today who want us to believe that the love of God would lead us to not only love the sinner, but also their sin. And therefore, we should completely applaud and even promote those who uh, embrace the LGBTQ LMNOP community. I don't hate them, but I have to call sin, sin, according to what the Bible says is sin. Sadly, there are, some, there, are, uh, there are leaders in the church today who are failing to point people to the power of God, which, which can actually transform the lives of those who are living in sexual sin. With this in mind, if you would look with me again there in the middle of verse four, here again, Paul tells us that these people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but doing what? Denying its power. That word power was translated from the same Greek word that Paul used in his letter to the church in Rome when he described the gospel of Christ as the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God that changes lives. How do I know this? Well, because it's true for me. Before I came to Christ, I was living for all kinds of uh, sinful pleasures. And while I'm not suggesting that I'm perfect at this point in my life, I can tell you that, that the power of God, after I accepted the gospel of Christ, he has changed my life drastically and dramatically, and, and I know that he can do that for anyone who will simply trust in him. The gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation. And it's here in Romans chapter one where Paul declares this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The, the gospel message, which is centered around the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it contains the power by which sinners are turned into saints after we place our faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus. Therefore, the sinner who is denying the power of God is actually rejecting the gospel message which, uh, by which we can be saved from our sinful narcissisms and our sexual perversions. And, and, and sadly, Paul was correct that the last days are indeed filled with people who are rejecting the power of God and the reason why is because they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And not only are they rejecting the gospel of grace by which sinners are saved, but they're also triggered uh, by any Christian who attempts to preach the truth of God's word. This is a prophecy 
that we find in the scriptures. And in order to prove my point, I want to now switch gears by looking at the prophecy that Jesus presented in Matthew chapter 24. If you would look with me here at Matthew 24, we'll begin reading at verse 3. Here Matthew begins by writing this. He says, now he, that being Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now here in this verse, we find the disciples of the Lord, they're, they're coming to Jesus privately, they're looking for more information about the return of our Redeemer, and they wanted to know about the signs that would signify the second coming of Christ. And we can be thankful that the Lord Jesus took the time to present them with a list of indicators which would help us to determine if we are in fact in the last days. And with this as the focus, let's consider the prophetic signs that our Savior presented here in Matthew chapter 24. I want to pick up our study there at verse 4. Here Matthew tells us that Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Now, uh, here in these, uh, in these verses, uh, we learn that one sign is going to be the rise of these false Christs. Uh, listen, just because somebody says they worship Jesus doesn't mean they worship Jesus. And I, and I find a lot of Christians get confused about this, and a lot of Christians will say, well, you know, they, they said they worship Jesus. Well, which Jesus? Did you know there's more than one Jesus? Jesus himself said there are false Christs who would deceive many. The world is filled with false Christs who are deceiving people just as Jesus told us. For example, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are worshiping uh, an, an angel that they believe is Jesus. I believe it's a fallen angel that they're worshiping. The Latter-day Saints are worshiping a Jesus who is the brother of Lucifer. The Roman Catholics are worshiping a Jesus who allegedly appears in, in, in wafer form during every mass. New Agers worship a Jesus that they believe to be the reincarnation of the Buddha. Those who embrace oneness Pentecostalism worship a Jesus who they believe to be the incarnation of God the Father. And in light of this list, we can see that the world is filled with religious systems uh, that have uh, leaders that are pointing people to false Christs. And they're saying, hey, come worship our Jesus. Yet I'm here to tell you that these groups are pro pro you know, presenting you with a Jesus that isn't found in the scriptures. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen in the last days. And while it's true that the world is filled with religions that point people to a false Christ, it's also true that there are at least 12 people on the planet today who have publicly proclaimed themselves to be Jesus Christ. 12 people alive right now, walking the planet. At least 12 that I know of, there could be more. Who insist that they are the Christ. Not only that, but the 20th century was filled with false Christs, including Sun Young Moon, Jim Jones, Charles Manson, Marshall Applewhite, and David Koresh, and that's just the short list. And in light of this, there should be no doubt in our minds that the first sign of the second coming is currently being fulfilled. At the same time, it's important for us to understand that the Lord Jesus not only described the spiritual climate of the last days, but he also described the geopolitical climate of the world so that those who trust in him might know 
if it's the time of his return. With this as the focus, let's continue to consider the prophecy that Jesus presents here in Matthew chapter 24. If you would look with me there at verse 6, here the Lord declares, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Now here in these verses we find the Lord Jesus describing the geopolitical climate of the world before the time of his return. And while it's true that the world has always seen kingdom rise up against kingdom, we're even seeing some action happening in the news even today, we must not fail to see the connection that the Lord Jesus was also making as he conjoined the global political climate with the global climate crisis that's now driving much political change. What am I saying? Well, it was during the first decade of the 21st century when Al Gore became the high priest of a doomsday cult that's been warning the world about the ecopocalypse for the past 50 years or so. It was actually in 2006 when our former vice president set out to convince the world that we're actually facing a a planetary emergency. Gore uh, went on to insist that we have 10 years, this is 2006, we've got 10 years before the world would reach the point of no return. That 10 years passed three years ago. So if that's the case, we're already past the point of no return. This, of course, hasn't stopped other politicians from capitalizing on the current climate crisis hysteria. Uh, For example, it was last April when Robert O'Rourke, better known as Beto, Robert insisted that we only have 10 years left to act before it's too late to confront climate change. Now, that's the same thing that Gore said back in 2006. So, So what advanced the clock so that we've got another 10 years? Politics. It was last September when Elizabeth Warren told CNN's Chris Cuomo that we only have 11 years, maybe, to reach a point where we've cut our emissions in half, and that's not just America. Or in other words, Warren was suggesting that we must force the rest of the world to cut carbon emissions, or we're going to cross the point of no return in 11 years, maybe. It was last January when freshman Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she said this, She said, millennials and people, you know, Gen Z and all these folks that will come after us are looking up and we're like, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. That's right. According to AOC, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't pass her new green deal. Not only that, but she also insisted that Miami would be gone in a few years because of climate change. Wow. And this sounds like the same warnings that Al Gore made 13 years ago, which he said would come to pass in 10 years, and here we are three years after the fact, and nothing happened. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, because listen, I'm all for clean air. I'm all for clean water. I'm all for a clean planet. I think that, you know, this is all a wonderful goal, right? Not only that, but I also believe that the, the world is experiencing a climate crisis. I, I'm not a climate change denier. 
I do believe we, we are seeing temperatures rise. I, I do agree that we're continuing to see an increase of global cataclysms caused by unusual weather patterns. We're seeing pestilences and earthquakes and all these things that Jesus said we would be seeing in the last days. The Lord Jesus said all of this was going to take place. He, he said this back in the first century. He promised these things as he described what? The signs of his second coming. Not only that, but the prophetic promise that the Lord Jesus presented here in Matthew chapter 24, it conjoins global politics with the global climate crisis. Kingdoms rising up against kingdoms during a time when there's all this uh, cataclysmic climate change happening. These things are connected in this prophecy. And that's exactly what we see happening right now. Not only are we seeing the kingdoms rise up against kingdoms, which has been happening for, for eons, but now we're seeing kingdoms being driven politically by climatologists creating you know, a, a new political uh, movement. You, the, the, the United Nations is attempting to solve the climate crisis that we currently find ourselves in. With that being the case, I must insist that the signs of our Savior's return are being fulfilled right before our very eyes. In order to further prove my point, let's continue to consider the prophecy that Jesus presents here in Matthew chapter 24. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 9, here Jesus declared, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will be offended. Huh. Many will be offended will betray one another and will hate one another. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus describing the last days as a time when the church is going to suffer great persecution. And, and Jesus, just as Jesus promised, uh, the persecution of Christians continues to increase all around the world. According to the research, studies consistently show that Christians suffer significantly higher levels of persecution and intolerance than any other religious system. In, in 2017, 215 million Christians were persecuted in 58 countries throughout the world. Then in 2018, that number increased to 73 countries, affecting 245 million Christians, and the number continues to increase throughout 2019, which makes Christianity the most widely targeted faith group in the world. You see this being covered on mainstream media? Why not? This is a huge story. Doesn't fit the narrative, though. In light of all this, I wasn't surprised to learn that it was last November when a statue of Molech was erected in front of the Colosseum in Rome where first century saints were tortured for sport. Grasp that for a moment. They have erected a statue of Molech in front of the Colosseum in Rome. Now, the statue of Molech includes a disclaimer that, that uh, argues that the Bible stories of Molech are, are works of fiction. But we know that's not the case. There's no doubt in my mind that the creation of this idol in front of that Colosseum is yet another indicator that we are, in fact, living in the last days that Jesus spoke of. 
This is one more evidence that persecution for the church is only going to ramp up more and more. And listen, if you think that the church here in America will somehow escape this persecution, we must not fail to notice an important word that Jesus used there in verse 9. It's a little bitty word. It's the word all. Look with me there at verse 9 where our Savior declares, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus didn't say most nations. He didn't say most nations except America. He said all nations. The church is going to be hated by all nations. And it's there in verse 10 where Jesus continued to qualify uh, the reason for this widespread persecution by informing his disciples that many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. In other words, uh, the message of those who proclaim uh, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to offend those who hate the true and living Lord. The message of the cross will be an offense. To put it in more modern terminology, those who are woke will be easily triggered by those who are talking about Jesus. Just as the Lord promised, we're currently surrounded by these social justice warriors who are easily offended by every opinion that fails to line up with their progressive agenda. I have no problem having polite conversation with people who disagree with me. I love it, actually. To sit down with someone who has a different idea, a different belief system, and to to just have a nice conversation with them about why they believe what they believe and why I believe what I believe, but this is no longer an option here in this day and age because people are so quickly offended. They're so quickly triggered. And then it's, you know, well, let me jump on social media and try to cancel this person's life because they said something that I disagree with. It's just as Jesus promised. They preach tolerance while practicing intolerance. They demand equality while denying the rights of those on the right. They declare peace and love while fomenting hatred against those who follow Jesus. And then they weaponize our courts while opposing those who enforce the laws that they don't like. Oh, they love to enforce, they love to weaponize the courts while tearing down our police force. Makes no sense. And according to Jesus, all of this is a sign of his soon return. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at Matthew chapter 24. I want to fix your focus there at verse 11 where Jesus declares, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. In other words, we'll know that we're living in the last days when the world is filled with lawless people who become loveless people. And as we consider the current state of the United States, there's no doubt in my mind that we're living in the period of time that Jesus was describing because we live in a world where lawlessness is leading to lovelessness. Lawlessness is most certainly abounding and therefore the love of many has grown cold. One reason why is due to the fact that people no longer believe that God is sovereignly in control and that the rulers of this world have been appointed by him. 
They want to be lawless because they don't believe in lawgivers. They want to be lawless because they don't want to subject themselves to the one who has ordained human government. And in order to explain my point, I want to consider something that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13. If you would look with me here, beginning at Romans 13, verse 1, here Paul declares, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by who? By God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's encouraging Christians to live in subjection to those in authority. And the reason why is due to the fact that God is the one who raises up rulers and he's the one who brings them down. Do you believe this? I mean, do you really believe that God is sovereignly in charge and that he raises up rulers and brings them down according to his will? Do you believe that the Lord is the one who raised up Barack Obama back in 2009? Many Christians struggle with that. Not me. If God wants Barack Obama to be president for two terms, that's God's deal. That's on him. If God wants Bill Clinton, if God wants George Bush, if God wants Ronald Reagan, whoever he wants, let God be God. Do you believe that the Lord is the one who appointed Trump in 2016? I do. Why? That's what the Bible says. As we continue to consider the point that Paul here is making in Romans chapter 13, it's important to note that he wrote this encouragement to Christians living where? In Rome. During when? During the days when Nero was the ruler of Rome and the emperor of the entire Roman Empire. And just to be clear, you should know that Nero was a bad dude. He killed his own mother. The, the guy who can kill his own mother is a horrible person. Not only that, but I mean, you know, he built a palace for the specific purpose of his drunken orgies. He was a pervert and a murderer and a persecutor of the church. Nero persecuted the church by torturing Christians in all sorts of horrific ways. And despite all of this, Paul still recognized God's sovereign decision to raise up Nero to rule over the Roman Empire for the time that he ruled over the Roman Empire. Now, in light of these facts, it would be ridiculous for us to think that Paul was endorsing Nero as a good and godly leader. It would be foolish for us to think that, well, well Paul must be endorsing Nero as, as this man of God. No. He's just acknowledging that God's sovereignly in control. Paul was able to recognize that God 
sovereignly placed Nero in that position of power for his own purposes. Not only that, but Paul also reminded the church in Rome that those who resist the authority are actually resisting the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And yet there's a whole group of people called the resistance today who are doing what? Resisting authority. Who are they resisting? Ultimately, God. In order to further explain my point here, I would remind you that the Lord is the one who raised up Nebuchadnezzar to rule over the kingdom of Babylon during the days of Daniel. And not only that, but it was in 586 BC when the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar the power to conquer the nation of Israel. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Israel. It was during that time when the prophet Daniel acknowledged the fact that the Lord is the one who raises up world rulers and he's the one who removes them. This was precisely the point that the prophet Daniel was making in the fourth chapter of his book. It's there where he declares this. He says that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. The Lord is the one who raised up Nebuchadnezzar and the Lord is the one who empowered him to conquer the nation of Israel. Not only that, but the Lord is also the one who then raised up a Persian king named Cyrus to conquer Babylon. And the Lord is the one who directed King Cyrus to then release the Israelites from their Babylonian captivity. In order to prove my point, I should remind you about a prophecy that the Lord presented through the prophet Isaiah. It's here in Isaiah chapter 44. I'm going to draw your attention to verse 24 where the prophet Isaiah declares this. He says, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Here in this prophecy, we find the Lord presenting this this prophetic word about a shepherd named Cyrus. This prophecy was presented 200 years before it was fulfilled. And just as the Lord revealed, it was 200 years later when a Persian king named Cyrus came along and conquered the Babylonian empire and then allowed the nation of Israel to return to the land of promise so that they could go back and rebuild the temple of God. In light of this story, there should be no doubt in our minds, Paul was correct when he declared there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Israel and to take them captive for 70 years and then God raised up King Cyrus and told us 200 years in advance that he'd do it did it, and then set the people free so that they could go back and rebuild the temple. God is the one who's in control. And as we consider the story of King Cyrus, it's also interesting to note that Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, the prime minister of Israel, has compared Trump 
to the Persian king Cyrus. In other words, the man that the Lord appointed to lead the nation of Israel here in this day and age, he believes that the God of Israel has raised up President Trump to provide them with the freedom to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. And in order to understand this point of view, I should remind you about the political promise that President Trump made and kept, and he kept it back in March of 2018 when he moved the American embassy to Is- uh, in Israel from Tel Aviv to, to the city of Jerusalem. This is a promise that American presidents have been making uh, for years. None of them fulfilled that promise, but Trump did. And in order to understand the significance of that move, it's important to understand that our embassy was formerly in Tel Aviv and, and, and it was there in order to appease uh, the Muslims who insist that Jerusalem actually belongs to the Palestinians. And so in order to, you know, not rock the boat, you know, let's not, let's not put it in Jerusalem, right? When, tr- when, when Trump relocated our embassy in Israel to the city of Jerusalem, he was essentially acknowledging Jerusalem as the property and the capital of Israel. That's what he was saying. And he's right. Listen, it was at that point in time when the Israeli Mikdash Educational Center announced that it would be celebrating the embassy opening there in Jerusalem, they celebrated by creating a temple coin which features a bust of President Trump alongside of a bust of King Cyrus. Now trip out on that. And as we consider the significance of this special coin, there should be no doubt that there are many Jews who recognize that the Lord is once again raising up a Gentile ruler to free them from the oppression of their enemies. Uh, Further evidence of this can be seen in the fact that it was last March when President Trump officially recognized Israel's sovereignty over the highly contested Golan Heights, and that's huge. And then in November, the Trump administration announced that the United States would no longer recognize Israeli settlements as being inconsistent with international law. Basically telling the people of Israel they can go build settlements wherever they want. It's their land. In this way, President Trump has restored a long-standing U.S. position that the Obama administration previously abandoned. Simply put... President Trump continues to provide the nation of Israel with more control over the land that God promised to give to them. And it's for this reason that the Israeli Mikdash Educational Center just released a second edition temple coin. You can go online and buy it if you want. But this coin, this second edition, once again includes the faces of King Cyrus and President Trump. The new coin also includes the words of Cyrus from Ezra chapter 1. And it's in Ezra 1 where the Persian king declares this. He says, all the kings of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem. And this coin commemorates the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity, but more more importantly, the release that King Cyrus initiated because of the word that God gave to him. And now we see President Trump being joined together with Cyrus in this commemorative coin that celebrates the release of Israel from that 70-year captivity of Babylon. 
And in light of all of this, and in light of how the Jews see President Trump and compare him to King Cyrus, I can't help but to wonder, is the Lord planning to use President Trump to empower the nation of Israel to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem, uh, thereby fulfilling yet one more prophecy that must come to pass before the second coming of Christ? Now, please don't misunderstand my point, because I'm not up here trying to tell you that Trump is a Christian. I, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. I I tend to think probably not. I I don't know. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. I'm certainly not suggesting that I approve of everything that he says or does. Listen, I I haven't voted Democrat or Republican in years. I didn't vote for Obama and I didn't vote for Trump. I've voted third party for forever, it seems like now. So initially I had no dog in this fight. And I'm not trying to convince you to go vote for Trump, you know, at, at, the, next, uh, <laughs> at the next election. That's not my point. But what I do believe and what I encourage you to embrace tonight is that there is no authority except from God and that the authorities that, ex- are, uh, that exist are appointed by God, and you better believe that President Trump was appointed by God to accomplish these incredible things that are happening in Israel. And to what end? For the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Sadly, we live in a time when our nation is filled with lawless people who refuse to subject themselves to the sovereignty of God. And they're doing everything they can to remove Trump from his presidential position. And while these enraged people insist that their reasons for demanding the removal of Trump include, you know, racism and Russian collusion and abuse of power and all these sorts of things, it's my strong opinion that those who oppose this administration are actually lawless people who simply will not subject themselves to the sovereign decisions of God who has decided to raise up a president who will set the stage for the third temple there in Jerusalem. Please trust me when I tell you that the Lord is the one who has raised up Trump to restore Jerusalem into the hands of the chosen people. And at the same time, the Lord is also the one who led Trump to pull our troops out of Syria. And it was last October when the Trump administration announced that that we're pulling out of Syria. And this decision continues to create the conditions for the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 to be fulfilled. And that's precisely what we see uh, as we continue to watch Russia and Turkey and Iran joining forces, just as the Lord revealed through the prophet Ezekiel so many years before. All of this is lining up. And to just sum it all up, most of the political chess pieces are currently in place for the Ezekiel 38 invasion of Israel to take place. And as we watch the leaders of Russia and Turkey and Iran entering into this unusual confederacy, there's no doubt in my mind that we are rapidly approaching the day when the church is going to be raptured. How do I know this? Well, I believe that the rapture is going to take place before the tribulation. And it looks like the tribulation's coming soon. It's kind of like when you start hearing Christmas music in, in the mall, you know that Thanksgiving is coming. And when you start seeing all the signs of the tribulation taking place, when you see all the chess pieces for the Ezekiel 38 invasion taking place, you know rapture of the church has got to be coming soon. 
With that being the case, it's my hope that this prophecy update will help us to have 2020 vision, spiritually speaking, as we look forward to 2020. I like the way that the Lord Jesus put it in Luke chapter 21. It's verse 28 where the Lord Jesus declared, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. When these things begin to happen, fix your focus. Do you see these things beginning to happen? If so, what are you focusing on? The signs of the times are clear and the conditions for the second coming of our Savior are are, are perfectly put in place. Therefore, it only stands to reason that the day of our redemption is drawing near as the Lord prepares to end the church age through the glorious event known as the rapture. And knowing that the rapture could happen at any minute, we would do well to heed the warning that the Lord Jesus presented in Matthew chapter 24. I I would draw your attention back to Matthew 24, beginning at verse 42, where Jesus encourages encourages the church to have 20-20 vision. And, And this is what he says. He says, watch, therefore. Watch. Get your focus fixed. Watch, therefore. For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christian, listen, it's possible that you've grown weary waiting for the rapture of the church. And I know I I talk about the rapture often. I talk about the hope that we have and and, and I constantly remind you at every communion service that we're looking forward to that glorious day when we will be caught away. And it's possible that you're kind of like, yeah, I've heard it. Doesn't seem like it's happening anytime soon, so might as well go party. It's possible that you're beginning to backslide as you pursue the pleasures of this world because you've grown tired of looking for the second coming of Christ. And if this sounds like the direction your life is headed in, then I encourage you to remember this warning of the Lord. That if you begin to say in your heart, well, he's going to delay. He's not coming back in my lifetime. I might as well just go on about, you know, my own living for my own, you know, lust and whatnot. Oh, the Lord warns us. You don't know when, he, when this is going to take place. You don't know the time of his return. Therefore, rather than living your life seeking instant gratification of sin, uh, let's seek the reward that the Lord is going to give to us on the day of our redemption. And, and I like the way that Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 6. It's in Galatians 6 where Paul declares this. He says, do not be deceived. In other words, this is something that you might be deceived about. 
Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. As I consider this word of encouragement, it breaks my heart as I consider all of the believers that I know, uh, that I watched beginning to sow the seeds of sinful corruption into the spiritual soil uh, of their soul and, and, and thinking that, you know, uh, they're just going to have a little fun. It's not going to really hurt anything. But where are they now? I texted the guy that led me to the Lord today, encouraging him to come out tonight for this service. I knew he wouldn't because he's living in the, in the world. The guy that led me to Jesus is back living in sin. And it's heartbreaking. And I could run off a list of people that walked with the Lord for a season but grew weary in doing good. Rather than finishing their race well, they're now living for the lust of the flesh, waiting for certain punishment. Waiting for the loving correction of the Lord. Failing to realize that it's only a matter of time until they reap the rotten fruit of their wicked works. Thankfully for us, the Lord has provided us with the power that we need, the power of his Holy Spirit so that we can overcome the fleshly fatigue that sets in as we begin to grow weary of serving the Lord. Rather than giving up, rather than giving in to our carnal cravings, let's instead continue to sow the good seed of the Spirit so that we can reap the eternal rewards that the Spirit has for us. With this as our goal, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that the faithful servant must first fix their focus on the finish line. If you're double-minded, you're unstable in all of your ways. If you want to cross the finish line well, fix your focus on the finish line. I like the way that Paul put it here in Philippians chapter 3. It's In verses 13 and 14, where Paul declares, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Rather than continuing to focus on everything that happened last year, rather than continuing to dwell on all the bad things that happened, rather than continuing to focus on all the people who hurt our feelings, rather than continuing to focus on all the issues that rose up and all the things that, that cause us to, 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 to fear, and rather than focusing on all of these things, let's focus forward. Let's focus forward so that we can see where we're going, not worry about where we've been. Let's focus forward as we press toward the goal until the day we cross the finish line of faith. Let's focus on the upward call of God, which is found in Christ Jesus. 
And as we focus on the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, let's ask the Lord to provide us with the spiritual strength that we need so that we can continue serving our Savior all for the glory of God. Let's ask God for the spiritual strength that we need so that we can continue serving Jesus until the day we find ourselves standing face to face with our Savior. And on that day, we will reap the rewards that the Lord has promised to those who live for him. Let's pray.